Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's time to watch for the Northern Lights. The sun is sending this stream of plasma called the solar wind that flows past the Earth. And some of those particles get funneled down towards the polar regions and cause auroras. It's Wednesday, December 13th, and it's the birthday of famed Norwegian scientist Christian Berkland. So we'll just call it Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Way back in 1867, when Birkeland was born, there were some theories, but nobody really knew what caused the vibrant pinks and greens of the aurora borealis. By the start of the 20th century, though, he became the first to chronicle that explanation we just heard. But what makes them appear so different each time? Here's Ira Flato from a show back in 2021, talking to a modern aurora researcher about this wild winter light show. Believe it or not, with all that we know about Earth science, the reason for this variable display has been a long-standing mystery in the astronomical community. And joining me now is someone whose research may have finally helped us know why the aurora comes in such different flavors. Here with me is Dr. Jim Schrader, Assistant Professor of Physics at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. A pleasure to be with you. So what is known about how the northern lights and their southern hemisphere cousins happen? Yeah, so it's known that auroras are produced when energetic particles from space, like electrons, come raining down into the atmosphere. And they'll strike atoms and molecules in the upper atmosphere. And actually, these energetic particles will give their energy to the atoms and molecules of the atmosphere. And then eventually, those atoms and molecules give up their energy in the form of a little flash of light. A photon is given off. And when a bunch of photons are given off over a region of the sky, that's what makes up an aurora. But as you said, there are some mysteries here because auroras have all sorts of different appearances, suggesting that what's actually pushing these electrons towards Earth varies. And there's different types of things that can push electrons towards Earth. Such as, I know the sun is a major player here, right? That's right. So the sun is sending a constant stream of something called plasma. And so plasma is actually... It's the fourth state of matter. We often learn about solids, liquids, and gases, but we we don't always learn about plasma on the same footing. Plasma is an ionized gas. So if you take a gas and heat it up, you get ions and electrons. And the sun is sending this stream of plasma called the solar wind that, that flows past the Earth. And some of those particles get funneled down towards the polar regions and cause auroras. And so what are the other things you mentioned? There may be different things, other things that are pushing the electrons. It turns out that the the direct streaming of solar particles towards the Earth is not sufficient to actually produce visible auroras. And so there has to be some extra energy boost given to these particles before they crash into the atmosphere. And so there's there's various things that are believed to to cause this energy boost that's needed for particles streaming downward. 
And there are things like actually particles catching waves and, and riding waves and being accelerated on waves as they come down towards the earth. And then there's also currents that flow in uh, the, the magnetic field around the earth and help to sustain the magnetic field around the earth. And those currents can carry particles down towards the earth as well. Waves? What kind of waves are you talking about? There's waves that exist in plasma that are, are not waves we experience in our everyday life, right? When we think about waves in our everyday life, we think about light waves, we think about sound waves, we think about radio waves or x-rays. But actually in plasmas, there's a whole bunch of other types of waves. And one of them that's known to exist in the plasma around the Earth is Elfane waves, named for a Swedish physicist, Hannes Elfane, who won the Nobel Prize. And this is a type of vibration in plasma. And so it's known that there are Elfane waves around the Earth. And actually, it's known that there are Elfane waves above auroras traveling down towards the Earth in the regions above auroras. And so there's been a hypothesis for a long time that these waves are a part of pushing electrons toward Earth and actually causing those electrons to have enough energy to produce visible auroras. Wow, the geek in me wants to know more about these Elfane waves. How do they start? Where do they end? Give me some more details on that, please. Yeah, so Elfane waves are uh, a disturbance of magnetized plasma. So I was talking about plasma being ions and electrons. And so to make it magnetized, there has to be a magnetic field running through it as well. And that's exactly what we have around the Earth. Earth has its magnetic field that extends out into space. And so when the ions and electrons and magnetic field get together, there can be vibrations of that magnetic field. If you picture kind of waves on a string, if you take an instrument and you pluck the string you, with a high-speed camera, you could see waves traveling along the string. And actually, it's the same, very similar mathematics behind Elfane waves. There's vibrations that carry along the magnetic field lines very analogously to how waves travel along strings. Wow. And so your research has been trying to connect these waves to the electrons that give us the most distinct, the, the, the dramatic auroras? That's right. We have all sorts of, of survey data and case studies from satellites and rockets that have shown us for decades that Elfane waves are really common above auroras, and they're actually really common above what are called discrete auroras, these really bright bands of light across the sky, the, the sort of iconic auroras that you think of when you, when you picture an aurora in your mind is a discrete aurora. And so we know that Elfane waves are common above those auroras, and actually, as the auroras get to be more active and there's more auroras in the sky, there's more Elfane waves present during those times. And so there's this really suggestive correlation. But we've never actually been able to say definitively if the Elfane waves are a part of causing the auroras or if simply the Elfane waves happen alongside them. And so our goal was to try to do a really detailed study, create Elfane waves in a laboratory with, with conditions relevant to where auroras are produced, and monitor those Elfane waves to see if they can give their energy to electrons. As I was saying, electrons need a boost in energy in order to actually produce auroras. And what did you find in your lab? Drumroll, please. That's right. Drumroll, please. We found Elfane waves do transfer energy to electrons in conditions relevant to where auroras are produced. And so that means we have a definitive test showing that Elfane waves can participate in the production of auroras. And actually, the way that this process would unfold is pretty striking. If you picture surfing, I've actually never been surfing, but what I'm, what Me neither, I'm told- Me so we're on the same page. Okay, perfect. What I'm told is that you have to paddle up to the right speed. And if you watch surfing videos, this is what you see. You don't see the surfers just sitting out there in the middle of the ocean. And so once you're at the right speed, then you can be picked up by an ocean wave. 
And what we found in the in the plasma in our laboratory experiments is something similar that electrons have to be going at the right speed in order to be picked up by the alphane waves. So they're they're surfing on alphane waves. So next time you see an aurora, you could think about electrons surfing on alphane waves out in space. Now that you know this, how does how does it go from the lab to space? That's right. Of course, we would love to do a demonstration, actually a, an in situ measurement of this process, right? You, you notice I, I said alphane waves can cause auroras in conditions relevant to where auroras are formed. What we'd like to do next is actually go out into space and perform a measurement that would, that would definitively show this happening out in situ. That's been a really tricky task, and that's actually initially why we turned to the laboratory. But our ability to take space-based measurements is always improving. That door is not closed. Okay, well, we'll wait for that to happen. All these surfing electrons relate to these sharp, distinct auroras. Now, what about when auroras are very blurry looking? Do we have no surfing electrons there? That's right. So when auroras are, are more blurry looking, those are called diffuse auroras. And it's believed that the source of those electrons, what's actually pumping up the energy of those electrons is something different in that case. Earth has this band of energetic particles around it called the radiation belts. Actually, there's a couple belts around the Earth, and some of them come and go. So there's, there's some, some belts that are there, and then, and then they vanish. But it's believed that diffuse auroras are produced by particles leaking out of that energetic belt of particles around the Earth. And so there'd be some trapped particles that make their way down to the poles from those radiation belts. And so that would, that would not be electrons surfing on alphane waves. That would be some other scattering process. That's terrific. So, so that's it. You, you solved the 40-year mystery. That's right. Although I, I have to say there are a lot of open questions about auroras. There's auroras at Earth. There are auroras elsewhere. This isn't to be interpreted as meaning that, that we've solved everything there is to know about auroras, but we have answered a longstanding question. So if you're looking out at an aurora, I'm outside in, in the cold. It's, I'm noticing its color and its shape. What are all the things I can tell about it just from the naked eye? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you're looking at an aurora, the first thing you could do is look to see if it's a discrete aurora or a diffuse aurora, if it has well-defined bands of light or if it's just kind of hazy. That would give you a hint about if the electrons were being pushed down towards Earth by alphane waves, by surfing, or if they were leaking out of the radiation belts instead. Another thing you might notice is actually the different colors of auroras. And so auroras are often green, but sometimes they're reddish and purplish. And that would indicate actually where the light is being given off at different altitudes. Is that right? It's like, it's like, it's like a rainbow then. That, yeah. So there's um, the atomic transitions that, that make up different colors require different amounts of time in order to occur. And so if an atom getting ready to have an atomic transition and give off, let's say, purple light, if it bumps into something else in the meantime before that transition can occur then the energy is stolen away and it won't actually produce its little flash of light. And so as you go up into the atmosphere, things are more spread out, the density goes down, and that allows more time for the transitions to happen and we can see different colors. Hmm. Can the colors tell me anything about uh, what elements, what molecules are being activated here? That's right. So oxygen is known for giving off it uh, kind of yellow-green light and also some red light, but the red light given off by oxygen is, is much, much higher in altitude um, because those transitions require a lot more time to occur. And then nitrogen molecules can give off kind of dark reddish light. We've been talking about the role of the sun in bringing us these aurora displays. 
can understanding the sun better help us predict when we might see a lot of auroras or what the nature of them might be? Yeah. So the, the sun is, of course, the ultimate driver of all auroral activity. If we didn't have the sun sending out its solar plasma, the solar wind, then we wouldn't have auroras. Knowing something about the sun, especially the, the variations of that solar wind as it's coming out, helps us to predict when there might be more or less auroras. And so the sun goes through an 11-year cycle where it's more or less active and the solar wind is more or less variable as it's streaming outward. And that, that is a good indication of, on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, when you're likely to see more auroras or less auroras. But there are a lot of mysteries that remain, like why does the sun have its 11-year cycle? And, and why do certain things that we can see on the sun actually correlate to the, the variability of the solar wind as it's streaming past the Earth? Really cool. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studio. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science. Neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. In case you're just joining us, we're talking with Jim Schrader, assistant professor of physics at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Everything you've ever wanted to know about auroras. And Jim, what, what do you not know that you would like to know. I'm going to give you the blank check question, which I give a lot of scientists. If you could build a, a device or study something more and it would cover that cost, what would you like to know? How would you do that? Oh, I would, I would love to have uh, fleets of satellites at every planet where we know auroras exist so that we can get really complete data about what's creating those auroras in different scenarios. Like we see auroras at Jupiter that look much different from what we see here at Earth. And there's also evidence of ultraviolet auroras appearing at Mars. No kidding. And so I would, I would love to know more about that. Ultraviolet auroras at Mars. So if, if they were ultraviolet and you were on Mars looking up, you might not see them because we can't see ultraviolet naturally. That's right. You need an ultraviolet camera. And that's, that's in fact how they have been seen with a UV camera on the MAVEN spacecraft. Hmm. Do these electrons, as they're traveling up and down, uh, do they create any sounds as they travel? So the electrons don't create sounds themselves, but they do have vibrations that map directly to the audible spectrum. So sounds that we can hear. So if you take the vibrations of electrons traveling around the earth and you just transform that into an audio file, you can hear it. And there are some great videos out there on YouTube of these types of noises, what are called electron whistler waves. And it's this really kind of eerie noise that, that or it's, it's a signal that is transformed into an eerie noise of kind of chirping, the, the frequency going up and the frequency coming down. And it has to do with waves in plasma actually being separated by different frequencies. And I know there are a lot of ham radio enthusiasts that try to listen to these waves. That's right. So they're picking up those vibrations and then translating them into an audio signal using their receiver. Are there any other phenomena in the universe that this research into auroras might help us better understand stuff? Yeah. So you know, I often get kind of the so what question. Why do we care about how electrons gain the energy that's needed to, to produce auroras? And so close to home, the reason why you know, we care about something like this is because 
we're more dependent than we've ever been on the space around Earth, what's called geospace. We have all sorts of assets and satellites out there that help us to communicate and navigate and monitor the Earth. Um, and so we, we care about the dynamics of what's happening around the Earth. But then in, in terms of just kind of pure science questions, what's, what's left out there that we don't understand? There's all sorts of energetic particles out in the universe. So if you look even just a little bit further out from the auroras, there's the radiation belts and the energetic particles of the radiation belts. We, we don't really understand how those particles get to be so energetic. And we'd love to know that, again, because we depend on geospace. Now, I heard this year, earlier in the year, uh, as I say, I have never managed to see an aurora, but I heard that the aurora was moving up and down the hemisphere a little bit for, for, for certain reasons. Why is that? Why do we see that, hey, some people a little further south might be able to see the aurora at this time of the year? That's right. So when there are geomagnetic storms that are more severe, like there's a larger disturbance of Earth's magnetic field by the, the variable flow of the solar wind past the Earth, that tends to create auroras that are visible at lower latitudes. So we don't, we don't often get to see them here in Illinois, but there's been a couple nights this year where we've, we've been warned that it, it might be a good time to go outside and look. And so that has to do with actually the, the disturbances of the magnetic field penetrating deeper into Earth's magnetic field and being visible at lower latitudes. Wow. Well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and hope uh, we get to see one or I get to see one, Jim. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Ira. Happy holidays. Jim Schrader, Assistant Professor of Physics at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. But if you want to continue exploring auroras and this idea of electrons surfing on magnetic waves some more, We've got something special for you on our website. It's a fun activity you and any young person you know can try. Learn to think like an aurora scientist, just like Jim here, to predict the color and shape of aurora in the sky. That's on sciencefriday.com waves. Sciencefriday.com waves. That's all the time we have. Coming up on our next episode, another traditional holiday activity that has you looking to the skies. Yes, it's time for the annual Christmas bird count. I'm John Dankosky. Happy Aurora watching and happy birding, and we'll see you soon. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm.